Hi, Andrew. Hi, Amish. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm quite well, thank you. Great. Um, I was watching a video with Al Schmidt doing a seminar recently in a recording studio, and I noticed you were one of the kind of guests walking around watching him. Um, <laughs> yes. Is there something that you're kind of learning from that or something that you're getting? especially? Um, yeah, I mean, when that... That was a, a two-day recording a big band seminar that he did at Capitol, I don't know, it's years ago now. But as soon as I saw that was announced, and I was still living in L.A. at that point, I signed up. I mean, I signed up probably 30 seconds after they made it possible to sign up. I've known Al for years. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with him. He recorded strings on a couple of records I've worked on. Um, but I just, there's something that seems effortless in what he does and the I don't use EQ and I don't use compression and um but it's absolute magic you know his balances are incredible but it's more than that you know sonically the stuff is great and I just I had to see it happen and so yeah I got a ton out of it and interestingly there were a couple of times when I would talk to Al after watching him do something and say oh were you doing that because of this? And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, it wasn't, the way I was seeing what he was doing was nothing like his thought process, but that was okay, because, you know, I got some stuff out of it. But yeah, it was it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I, when I interviewed him, I think I had a similar thing of um, my presumptive reasoning behind what he was doing was nothing like his actual thought process too. <laughs> Yeah, and I think part of it is just the way he learned to do what he did. You know, like his thing about no EQ, no compression was because he learned and they didn't have any EQ and they didn't have any compression. I mean, he tells the story of when the studio upgraded and got an EQ and it was a mono bus EQ and that was it. And so it we see it as like, almost a rebellion against too much processing and all this kind of crap. And it's not at all. It's like, that's how he learned and that's how he does it. So yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So we were just talking about the base in the UK now. Have you yeah. noticed any big differences in kind of recording culture between America and England? I'm not sure how much time he spent in other studios, but. Yeah, it's, I mean, I mix most of the time. So really, the reason I was able to move here is that there's absolutely no difference to me sitting in a room in LA or sitting in a room in the UK on my own, sending mixes out. So that part didn't change at all. I mean, obviously, musically stuff is different. Uh, sonically stuff is different. And that's always been the case, especially like, you know, the UK rock sound is nothing like the US rock sound. But it's also, I don't think anyone is consciously going after one or the other. It's just the way stuff has evolved and the way people hear things. Um, I think, though, that the major differences are just more localized in a way because like you know the u.s recording scene like that doesn't mean anything i was in the middle of the la scene which is gigantic and completely driven by the fact that the record business is based there so everything is about making records and stuff and one of the things i found here out in worcestershire which is completely different from london um, or probably any of the major cities, but especially London, is that there is very little sense of the record business out here. I've met so many musicians who are amazing, 
and they don't really worry about recording or they record their own stuff, but it's just so they can have it. It's not like the LA thing of everybody's basically wanting to make money making records or touring or something. Like I've seen bands, really cool bands in LA break up because one of the guys gets a gig to go on tour with a larger artist. And it's like, well, I got to take the work because that was the point of them playing in the first place was to get work. Um, and here there seems to be a lot more of just playing because that's what they do. And a lot of them have day jobs, um, but they're still world-class musicians doing their thing. So it's not, it's not a reflection on one being better or worse or whatever. It's just a very different thing. And I'm sure it's different once you get out of L.A. You know, I'm sure there are hyper-local hyper music scenes all over the States as well. But they always seem to tend to... Like, if you make it big, then you'll move to L.A. sort of thing. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about your transition to mixing in headphones a lot of the time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like the transition to mixing in the box. It was sort of out of necessity. So once I was in the box, and that box was a MacBook Pro until pretty recently, um, when the fan noise just finally got to me and like, okay, I'll get a big boy computer for this, um, which, you know, anyway, but because I was so portable, I was moving around a lot and I would stop scheduling mixes. Like one of the great things about mixing in the box is I don't ever have like, okay, Wednesday I'm mixing this song and then Thursday I'm mixing this other thing for other people. I just work on everything all the time. And that means that if there's a trip, I don't say I'm completely unavailable to work for a week because I'm going to be out of town. I just tell people, oh, I'm traveling. It'll be a bit slow because I'm doing other stuff. But I can still just open up a mix, make changes, and then send it. So um, the headphone thing was because I was moving around. And then when we moved to the UK, I didn't have a room right away to set up in. Uh, and then I did have a room, but it wasn't actually in the house. I had to get in the car and it wasn't far away, but, you know, I actually had to get in the car and go do it. So I started just doing more and more of the work in headphones because that I could do at home. And for me, I, that's why I do it how I do it, um, because I can work for an hour and a half and then, oh, I've got to Skype with you. Fine. Just stop and Skype and then work for 40 minutes and then go mow the lawn and then work for an hour and a half and wake up in the morning and it's not this really structured work day ever. So to be able to just have it at home and be able to pick it up and drop it again was super important. And for a while I only had headphones at home and now I've gotten so used to it that I do a huge percentage of stuff on the headphones because I can really hear things. And then, um, I will, obviously check stuff on speakers and there's some records where it's like, wow, what the hell was I thinking? And there's stuff I got to really address that the change in perspective points out to me in a way that I just never heard. But most of the time I get stuff really close because I'm just used to it. And it's not anything to do with the headphones themselves. It's just knowing your monitor system. And really there's no monitoring situation that's more controlled than headphones. You know, even speakers in a room, you bring in 
a stack of books and put them on the floor and now you've changed the acoustics of the room and it's not drastic and it's not like that's going to mess you up but you're constantly having to get used to it and plus every time you move your head you're changing stuff and i know there's a ton of technology for people who mix in headphones to make them sound like rooms so that when you move your head it changes but that to me is that's like the opposite of what i want i love that i'm wearing my studio and if my cat jumps on my lap and i move back and I have to sit like this for a while because my cat will get angry if I lean forward, then it doesn't matter. You know, it just, it's just there. And it's given me this very cool kind of concentration thing as well, I think, because it blocks out ambient sounds. So I don't hear other people walking around in the house or stuff that's going on outside. And I'm super, super focused. Um, Anyway, blah, blah, blah. But that it's evolved to something, but I don't do it as a compromise. I actually really enjoy it, and it works out really well for me. Are there things that you were saying that sometimes mixes don't translate to speakers? Are there things that you feel like you've had to compensate for the most, maybe like spatial things or just, you know, certain different things that... No, spatial stuff is, is fine. It, it's really, it's stuff that could get past you on speakers. Because like, I only work on one pair of speakers. I just, I, the going back and forth thing doesn't work for me. I kind of get used to a sonic environment and then that's how I work. But I'm so used to them that generally I will build a mix that's fine. But it could be really stupid stuff. Like every song on this record now has way too much shit going on in the low mids. And now, okay, song by song, it's different things that will fix it. It's like, wow, the kick drum's really boomy on that, and the bass is out of control on this song or whatever. But for some reason, it wasn't bothering me on headphones. But the, the real test of it is as soon as I hear it on speakers, I can go back to headphones and I absolutely hear it. It's just I managed to get my head into a place where I could ignore it. And the change in sonic perspective by blasting it on speakers made it like, okay, you're a dick. You can't ignore this anymore. It's totally wrong. And every once in a while, something will actually get past me to the point of I've sent it out to clients that way. But it has nothing to do with being on headphones because that used to happen on the console too. And that happened when I was switching back and forth between my Tannoys and NS10s. I mean, that just happens where somehow you get used to something that's just crazy bad and you're okay with it. Like the vocal's still awesome and the song plays and you just don't realize that the kick drum is 5,000 dB too loud. And how could you have missed it? But you missed it. So it's not really a function of being on the headphones. It's just a function of you get used to stuff. Do you use an external headphone amp? Um, not anything in particular. At home, I use uh, my Apollo Twin because it sits on the desk. Um, and it's got a really big volume knob, which is really important to me. Ergonomics are super important, so it's sitting right next to me, and that works. Um, and I've gotten really used to the sound of its headphone amp, though. It wasn't something I sought out. I just started using it. And I think because I probably used it pretty much from the beginning of mixing in headphones a lot, it's just what sounds right to me now. Um, I've tried other stuff, and it either just doesn't make a big enough difference to be worth the effort, or it actually just sounds weird to me. Like, I would have to get used to this, and why would I bother? Um, but sometimes if I'm just on a laptop and I'm just, like, making mix tweaks to send or something like that, 
Um, I'll use, uh, I've got this AudioQuest Dragonfly, which looks like a little USB thumb drive, and it's just a really good DAC. And if I'm just checking stuff, I'll even just use the built-in on a laptop, because, you know, I'm just checking. Like, all the critical decisions have been made. That is, it's another point about the being able to mix on headphones or mix on anything, is you're not constantly making, like, critical sonic decisions about stuff like the overall low end you crank the mix up you hit play and like 30 seconds in you know what you need to do with the low end and whether it's working or not once you know that you don't need to constantly be listening for it super loud so you can work quietly on headphones even if you would normally work on speakers like it's not it's not really a problem there are times when okay now i've got to reset and i got to check the big picture i got to crank it up and that's easier to do on speakers and headphones or whatever but it's not you don't need to do that all the time i think before i've heard you talk about focusing on a few elements of a mix to kind of bring out and do a lot of work on and then leave a lot of other stuff a kind of less processed could you maybe talk about that a little bit yeah, it's not, um, the goal isn't to have less processed, pure stuff in the mix. The goal is to not waste your time because the vocal, let's, I mean, let's pretend it's a rock track or a pop track, whatever, it's something with the vocal. The vocal is the most important thing, period. So the vocal has to sound great. And obviously what's around it shapes how the vocal sounds, but if you've got a normal sort of band set up, so let's say counting the drums as one thing, not as the 30 microphones it might be, you've got, let's say, 12 elements in the song. So bass, drums, guitars, some keyboards, background vocals, lead vocal, some percussion, whatever. On some song, well, let's forget about the vocal for a second. Um, some songs, the percussion is really, really, really important like the cowbell on, uh, I can't remember the, which Chili Pepper song it was. It was a Chili Pepper song with really loud cowbell. Okay, the cowbell has to sound right on that mix. So what the cowbell sounds like is a big deal. Most percussion that people put in songs is sort of structural, though. It's like a little extra movement. It's a shaker, whatever. So, yeah, roll off the low end on the shaker because you don't need it. But if you spend more than about five seconds EQing the shaker, you're just wasting your time because who gives a shit? Pan it until you can hear it and it's doing the job and get the level right and you're done. Nobody cares about a half dB move at 10K on the shaker because you could turn it up or down and get exactly the same effect as the EQ. So it's really more about identifying what's important, making sure that stuff is always important and sounding great. And most likely, everything else can just get a level in a pan, and that balance will make that stuff work. That doesn't mean that you might not have to go off and really work on the piano, which is an important part of the sound, but because of the way it's recorded, it's killing something that is important. It just means to make sure you're always keeping in mind what the point of the mix is and not... The biggest reason I think I give that advice is because I see too many people when they start a mix just go left to right and solo everything and fix it. And that fix was in air quotes because 
you're not fixing it if it isn't broken and you don't know whether or not it's broken until you've got the mix going and you can't have it going until you've made the important stuff sound the way it should for the mix, whatever it is you've decided to do. And you've got a balance and most of the stuff is in the mix. At that point, if something really doesn't work, well, then it's broken. But you have no idea what it needs out of context. Really long answer to that. I think the whole point of this podcast is really long answers, so don't worry. <laughs> it's my forte. What are some of your favorite in-the-box reverbs? Favorite in-the-box reverbs? Um, well, I love the new UAD chambers. Those are really cool. It could just be that they're a new toy and I'll get sick of them. I'm not good at reverb. Like reverb is always really, really difficult for me. So I hate looking for reverbs because I never know what I want and it always sounds terrible. So that, with that caveat, um, the UAD Chambers is cool. I use Altiverb and IR1 quite a bit because um, Altiverb, the library is just insane. IR1 has a really good library but you can actually tweak stuff in really cool ways really quickly on IR1. Um, so the Convolution Reverb, just to not have to call up another plugin, to be able to just go through lots and lots of totally different sounding things. Again, because I never know what is going to work because I suck at reverb. Uh, and I use Dverb a lot, a lot. It's a great problem-solving reverb. It's slightly out of tune, so there's that. Um, it's just, it's something I use a ton. And it sounds terrible. And I think that's what I love about it. It's super grainy and easy to hear. Hey, everyone. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tonalux and their brand new JC37 microphone. This is a clone of the old Sony C37A tube microphone designed with producer Joja Corelli, who was on episode five of the podcast. The original Sony mics were used on sessions with people like Jimi Hendrix, Doors and the Wrecking Crew. In my opinion, these new Tonalux microphones are great for people with small studios and home studios looking to invest in one really great tube condenser mic. Unlike a lot of tube condenser microphones, these Tonalux mics are incredibly versatile, can be used on guitar amps, snare, kick drum, drum overheads, vocals, and almost anything that in a lot of situations a normal tube microphone couldn't handle the sound pressure of. And because you can get these microphones right up close to a lot of sources, they're great for recording in, in ideal spaces, which is what I do a lot of as I have a portable recording studio. And another great thing about them is, even though they're hand-assembled in the USA, these mics are a lot cheaper than a lot of classic tube microphones as well. You can get a pair of them for the same price that you could get a single tube microphone from a lot of other manufacturers. Please visit tonalux.com forward slash product forward slash JC37 to see more information about them. Thanks for listening, and now back to the episode. So, as far as I know from what I've heard you talk about, you aren't kind of primarily a musician yourself. Do you think that's impacted how you approach recording different instruments? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a failed musician in a way. You know, I play trumpet and brass and things, which um, I wanted to be in rock bands. So that, like the whole progression of it wasn't going to make me remain a musician. I also realized pretty early on um, that I wasn't good enough to be a professional musician. Um, my older brother is a jazz saxophone player, and he's he's insanely good, and I was nowhere near as good as him. And I just sort of realized like that wasn't it, and loved the idea of recording as soon as I knew it existed. So 
I'm a failed musician in the fact that I know I'm not good enough to be a professional, but it wasn't like, oh, I guess I can't be a musician, so I'll do this instead. So I always wanted to do it, but I think that the musical background is huge for working with musicians, which is the biggest part of recording anything. But in terms of the actual, like, where to put a microphone sort of thing, I don't know... I think that's all just engineery stuff. I don't think that that's really anything to do with with having played some of the instruments or not. Because um, there, there are techniques that I wish I could do better, like the whole reflected sound thing that um, like Mike Brissante, who engineers for T-Bone, does. And it's just this incredible, like, present but in a room sound and I'm always like wanting to get microphones really close to things because it just feels far away if I don't. And so that's a struggle I have. And I don't think that being a musician or not being a musician really even comes into it at all. I think that where having played instruments in groups and things like that really helps me just as in the personal dynamic. What do you think you learned from Rick Rubin specifically in terms of engineering and the kind of sonics of a record? Um, he just has a really specific thing that he responds to. Um, so you learn to do that, you know? Um, I mean, the great thing about Rick is he doesn't compromise on stuff like ever. You just, you work on it until it's how it's supposed to be. Um, so that as a non-specific sonic thing was like super important to learn because I think a lot of times you can get into situations which like acoustically suck and you're like well okay that's the room we've got like well no that's not the room you've got because that isn't the room that people are going to listen to it have they have the same room that they listen to everything else whether that room is you know earbuds or whether it's a really good sounding stereo it doesn't matter but whatever you do is up against everything else that has ever been recorded in the history of recording so you can't let a really shitty environment affect what you come up with. You've got to somehow embrace it or overcome it or incorporate it or whatever. But, um, and I think that that attitude, like it's easy to talk about, but with Rick, you live it all day, every day. Like you'll never be able to say when he says, wow, the drum sound isn't great. And you're like, yeah, but the room sucks. Like whatever, who cares? That's not, relevant really so that that's it's a pretty useful thing and it's like nothing you learn from scratch but to actually put it into practice is is a lot harder than you would want it to be but you you have to do it were there any kind of more geeky things like how he kind of approaches compression or like the sound of room no i mean he's he's not an engineer you know, he he knows what he wants to hear and he's made enough records that he can talk to talk and he can hear something and say, uh, let's try this. And it might be slightly specific, but he doesn't get involved in that. And I think um, I think that's good, you know, because he's listening for the end product. And if he says, let's compress it with this like this, then what if that's not the right thing? And I think what that goes to is a bigger concept, which is that just because you're using a Fairchild doesn't mean it sounds good, you know, and he will always have the perspective to say, I don't like that. 
And again, just like with the, oh, it's a bad drum room, you can't turn around and say, well, I'm using a Fairchild. And he goes, oh, yeah, maybe it's cool. It's, there's, it's completely disconnected, and that's super important. Um, I mean, you know, there's stuff that he likes, and a lot of it is the same stuff I like. You know, Neves, we both like Neves. So, okay, there's that. Um, but there, there isn't really specific technical stuff. Um, if it's all right with you, I thought we could go through some different instruments and maybe talk about your approaches to recording and mixing them. Maybe if we start with the drums, do you have a kind of go-to recording favorite mic techniques? And then maybe in terms of processing, do you have kind of standard? Yeah, processes? I mean, I do. I always try and do other things because I hate to think that it's like, oh, I've got a thing and this is the way I record drums and because every drummer is different every drum kit's different every room is different every song is different blah 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 so you want it to be different but um in general I use a multi-mic close mic setup with some extra microphones that are a bit further away or trying to get the whole kit and a lot of that has just come from years and years and years of needing to change the balance later of having to have control over stuff I can't in a lot of the the bigger, I don't know, higher profile situations, just like we were talking about with, with you know, Rick wants the kick drum louder, you got to be able to turn up the kick drum so you can't just have two mics on the kit because you need the kick drum louder. So that's what I've defaulted to. And it's really standard stuff inside and outside kick mics, top and bottom snares, usually just top mics on the toms and standard choices. Um, you know, I mean, I could go through them, but I don't think there's anything in particular, really. But one of the things I really like to do is I always set up talkback mics for everybody, including the drummer. It doesn't matter that they've got a ton of microphones around them. You, everybody needs to be able to hear the drummer speak in between songs. And depending on what people's headphone mix is like, they may not be able to unless there's a talkback mic. And that's a 57 pointed at the drummer's head. And that through an 1176 with all the buttons in is usually one of the best drum mics I've got up. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it just sounds great. It's really balanced. And because the frequency response of the microphone isn't great, you don't have weird problems like, oh, that cymbal's way louder than the other cymbals, or the kick drum's got so much low end, now I don't hear the toms, or anything like that. Because that microphone isn't picking them up. It's pointed at the guy's head, so it's sideways to the kit. And it's just a good picture of the kit. Um, I'll usually have a mono microphone somewhere, either behind the drummer's head or out in front of the kit down low uh, in front of the floor tom so it isn't on the hi-hat side and that gets crushed as an extra thing. And it's just, those get used as glue because the close mics, while it gives you all that control and they sound good and they sound like the drums, they don't necessarily give you the feel of a drummer playing a drum kit. So when I'm mixing, the parallel compression that I use on the drum kit will help glue that stuff together. But also these kind of smashed up, possibly lo-fi, but usually not pristine um, sort of mono pictures of the kit blended in work really well. I've tried lots of times to do the, um, the top side overhead thing, you know, the Glenn Johns three microphone thing. It can give you a really cool picture of the drum kit, but it relies upon having a great drummer because the balance needs to be right. And a lot of, especially rock drummers, they just play really, really hard all the time. So it's not necessarily that balanced. 
and that doesn't give you the kind of control you need. So usually overheads for me are more about being cymbal mics. They're not trying to get the whole drum kit. So they are technically like the rest of the set of the close mics for the cymbals. I don't want, like I get stuff to mix a lot where the overheads are really more about the snare than they are about the cymbals. But then when you're mixing and the drums aren't crazy loud in the mix, um, and you get to the chorus and the guy switches to the ride symbol, like you're struggling to bring the ride symbol out of the kit. Cause anytime you bring up any of the mics that are supposed to be the whole kit, they're really just bringing up the snare, the, the toms. And that's sort of an issue. So just having mixed hundreds and hundreds of different recordings of drums, my preference is to have the overheads be more about the cymbals than about the whole kit. So I've talked randomly about a lot of stuff, but I think that covers a lot of things. How do you decide between processing the close mics compared to kind of group processing or kind of more subtle stuff on the master bus? Well, if I'm recording the drums, uh, the processing on individual mics, like the um, like the mono microphones crushing them or the talkback mic, that's all part of the recording. Those are recorded that way. Um, I'm always hearing that and recording it. While I'm mixing, um, it's just, it's sort of two different things. Like if something's wrong with the kick drum, I'm going to process the kick drum mics. And by wrong, I just mean it doesn't sound or feel the way I need it to feel for the mix. Um, and then the overall processing is because the drums don't do what they need to in the context of the rest of the band. So getting the drum kit to work as a thing is often about individual track processing, but incorporates all the parallel stuff I do. And then the sort of overall processing to the drum kit, which I, sometimes I don't do any, it's just the parallel stuff. And sometimes I am actually processing my drum bus. Um, but I've only recently kind of had a drum bus in the last year, year and a half. So that's started to happen more, but I'm sure I'm gonna get sick of that and I'll stop doing it. So that sort of comes and goes, but it's the idea of, processing to make the drums work as the drums and then it's the processing that makes the drums work in the larger context of the mix i think that's the most succinct way i've heard someone put it um moving on to electric guitar what are kind of your go-to mics techniques and then processing that you kind of most often do for recording guitars, I mean, I I see people do all sorts of really cool stuff with ribbons and room mics and different distances and things, and I have trouble with that. It, it always just sounds phasey to me and weird. So 90% of the time, I will tape a 57 to a 421 to line the capsules up, put it on one stand and point it right in at the middle of a speaker on the cabinet, and that's it, and that's what I record. Obviously, if it's a larger sound, like it's a little combo amp, but it's going to be the main guitar for a song, then I will back the mics up and I'll try and get some sort of room sound. Um, I've seen lots of guys record just with a Royer two feet away from the amp, and it, it'll sound great. But when I do it, it sounds like a ribbon mic that's too far away from the amp. I don't know. It's just the way my head responds to what I'm hearing. So 90% of the time, that's the way I record electric guitars. And as, in, as far as processing goes, almost none. I mean, I will compress a cleaner electric guitar if there's just stuff sticking out all over the place. 
Um, but that would be a recording decision. If I'm mixing it, usually, I mean, as soon as you start distorting a guitar, it's compressed all the hell. So you don't need to compress them usually. Um, and EQ, I'm really all about mid-range. It's just about where can I find the tone in the smallest little chunk of mid-range so that you really hear what the guitar player is playing without taking up a huge amount of room because you're usually right around where the vocal is. So lately I've been trying to voice the guitars, not trying to, just what sounds good to me. I've been adding like 1.4K on electric guitars and it's lower than people usually go to and it's not really about the tone, but it's about the notes. And it's this weird kind of throaty spot in the way I hear it that's, that works. But again, I've only been doing that for a year, something like that. And I'm sure 1.4K will start to sound horrible to me soon and it'll be something else. So um, it's really, it's trying to get the guitars to sound big in the smallest space possible because you've also got vocals and cymbals and maybe keyboards, and they're all right in that same mid-range area. Are you still using the Kramer Helios EQ a lot on guitars? Uh, no, I use the the channel strip that I did with Waves like on everything now. And a couple of bands, one of the mid-range bands started its life based on the Helios, because that's what I was using all the time, and then we tweaked from there. So like in the mid-range bands of that channel strip, you've got... Helios, API, and Neve-ish things, depending on wh whether you choose narrow or broad and which of the two mid-range guys. So that gives me that flavor, but in a fully, uh, it's not parametric, so you can't adjust the Q in those bands. But you can go 20 to 20K with a frequency and it's granular amounts of boost, not in 2dB chunks, whatever. So it's, yeah, to get that same feeling and the thump, which is in the preamp section of that plugin, is kind of like what happens on the Helios when you just switch the low frequency EQ in, but you don't actually boost. And it's just like a super broad boost. And that on electric guitars sounds like cabinet thump to me. It sounds like what you hear in a room mic when someone palm mutes and stuff like that, where it just really blooms in the low end. So I do the same, exactly the same EQ, but I'm not using the Helios anymore because I tweaked it to be exactly what I wanted and put it in the plugin. So for me, it's brilliant. Well, thank you for using that in the first place, though, because it's become my go-to guitar sound. Just that plugin. Great. Um, maybe moving on to acoustic guitar. Do you have favorite mic techniques processing? Lately, for recording acoustic guitars, I've been using. I've got these two uh, RCA KU3s, which are pre the 44 and 77 they were made for sound stages they're just beautiful beautiful sounding microphones and just super realistic sounding you just you feel like you're in the room and it, but in that ribbon very natural way the top end isn't hyped at all and because of the way the microphones are built they're actually directional there's what they call an acoustic labyrinth behind them so it is a ribbon um there's no tricks like two ribbons in some of the buyers or something to make them um, directional. They're directional just because of the physical box that the ribbon is sitting in. Um, and those sound great, and I use that a lot. Otherwise, um, you know, all the standard stuff, I just see other people do stuff, and I try it, and every once in a while it works. A condenser kind of off-axis pointing back at the body from about four frets up on the neck, like that works well a lot of the time. Um, really, really standard stuff. 
and then you compress it if that's the sound you're going for. You know, it's like it's, that depends so much on the part and the guitar and whatever. I can't say that I would always compress a guitar because I wouldn't always compress it. With the ribbons, a lot of times I don't compress. And then for mixing acoustic guitars, um, it, yeah, it's so different. One thing I try and avoid is lots and lots of sort of string click. Like if you get a strumming acoustic guitar, I'll use uh, the de-esser on that channel strip plugin to just suck out that tiny bit of like clickiness because I feel like unless the acoustic's loud, it ends up being all you hear. Like, oh, I guess there's an acoustic guitar, but it's almost like a really annoying shaker. It's not an acoustic guitar. So like with the electric guitars, I'm trying to get the notes and the tone out of it. That's one of the things I'll do to try and do that with acoustics. Um, I will compress them in a the mix sometimes. It's like a slow compressor just to even stuff out a little bit. Um, but once you've done that, because it's slow, it's let all that attack through even more. So then you've really got to make sure that you're taking care of that stuff because it can make the guitar sound great on its own. But when you pop it in the mix and the bass is eating up all the low frequencies and everything else is eating up the mids, all you're left with is that kind of pick on the strings attack sort of thing. So that's the thing I'm always trying to kind of manage with them, I guess. With the more subtle compression, you normally going with the kind of more traditional opto type compressors that are maybe a bit heavier or are you doing more kind of modern subtle clean processing no i think with acoustics like acoustics and pianos just out of habit i reach for slow opto type things um i'm just used to the way they sound to me um like an la3a though is a really fast opto um it's it's a fet so it isn't an opto but it feels because they designed it to be the brother to the LA-2A, it still has that sort of character, but it is a FET version of it, so it's really fast and aggressive. So I like that on guitars. For a long time, um, I used LA-3s on acoustic guitars all the time. So it's that kind of opto feel, but it's a much more modern, aggressive version of it, I guess. Which plugin version do you find yourself using the most? Uh, for the LA-3? Well, again, I mean, this is going to sound like an ad for my channel strip. I took everything I liked about every single other thing and put it in the channel strip. So I will use the opto or fed on the channel strip. But as far as just an LA-3 emulation, that's a straight up one, the CLA, the Waves CLA-3 or whatever they call it. That yeah, and, yeah. and that 1176 are, if I'm going to use a plug-in version of it, standalone, those are the two because they're the most kind of messed up ones. They're like there's a lot of harmonic distortion and they're a bit gritty, and that's what I like about those compressors. I don't want it to be clean. If I did, I'd use a VCA or something like that. You mentioned piano there. Do you have kind of go-to favorite mics and mixing techniques for piano, upright or grand? Piano is a weird one because it can just be doing so many different jobs. I actually did a video with PureMix that was just about recording pianos. And I kind of did like every mic technique I know of and some that I stole that I don't even really use, but now I do use it. So as far as micing a piano, you just have to go with what what is the piano going to be doing? How important is it? How stereo does it need to be? How much like a piano does it need to sound? You know, it, so it's really hard to generalize. There are a bunch of different techniques that I would use. Um, one of the things I love, though, on a grand is 
um, a mono microphone right over the cross in the ironwork of the actual structure of the piano because you're miking the metal, not the soundboard. As soon as you're miking the soundboard, it matters where you are and their resonances and are you favoring certain strings over other strings. And even with two microphones, it's really hard to get a balanced picture of a piano. Whereas this one microphone over the ironwork, for some, it's got like a built-in crazy compressor. It just sounds old and compressed, but super balanced. And it kind of makes a grand piano sound like an upright, which I like. Uprights are really difficult because the soundboard is on the back, but if you open it up, you get the hammers, you get the strings on the front. Miking from the top seems like a really good idea, but usually sounds really weird. Um, so my favorite upright sounds I think I've gotten are microphones either side of the piano player's head kind of pointing at the piano. So it's just like what they hear. And those could be anything. I've used those big uh, RCA ribbons there and that is a really natural sound but it's big and it takes up a lot of room so yeah I, it piano varies so much that it's really hard to say and in terms of mixing it if it's stereo piano i will very often use an mseq so that i'm only eqing the sides because where you want to add stuff to really hear it ring and make it sound like a piano usually is right where the vocal is. So by using an MSEQ, and, and I don't necessarily suck anything out of it in the middle, but just don't bother boosting any mid-range in the middle. It just leaves a little bit more room for the vocal. For any instruments, are there any mics that have come out in the last kind of 10 years that have become some of your favorites or go-to mics if studios have them? Well, since... I mostly mix, and since my gear has been at Mono Valley, I've stopped buying gear. Like, my gear list just went away completely. And I've always... This is more about being fiscally terrified than it is about what gear is good. I've almost always bought vintage things from studios that are closing or whatever because it won't go down in value. And it's like no one... This is like the opposite of the... Well, I used a Fairchild. It's like, well, I own a Fairchild. Like, you can't go wrong owning stuff like that. So I'm not that up on a lot of the new microphones. Some of the stuff that I absolutely love, though, is the Mojave stuff, which is basically it's Royer, but it's not Ribbon. So it's Mojave. It's a different brand name, but the same company. Uh, well, not the same company because it's a different company name. But anyway, you know what I mean. Um, it started with Dave Royer designs that weren't ribbons. Um, and those, the MA200s, which probably came out more than 10 years ago now, they're large diaphragm uh, tube mics. And the top end on them is insane. It makes other mics sound broken if you AB them. So for overheads and stuff like that, I've used them for vocals quite a bit. Um, yeah, really, really great microphones. There are a ton of amazing new microphones that I know absolutely nothing about. You mentioned vocals there. What are some of your other favorite vocal mics and processing techniques? Uh, well, my vocal chain when I record is, I can't think of when this hasn't worked. So I will say all the time is a Neve 1073 with the uh, high pass filter, probably one click up, which I think is 50. I don't even remember now. And then a tiny bit of uh, the high shelf just cause you're going to do it later, so do it now. And then an 1176 at 4 to 1 with uh, the slowest attack, fastest release, and I don't know how much compression. And one of the reasons I do that is I actually use the output knob as a fader 
So like that chain will go straight into Pro Tools, and then I've got a, a fader. Every once in a while, I'll ride the input between sections of a song, but usually not. Usually, it's about riding the output. Uh, and microphone-wise, it just it depends on the singer. You know, the Mojaves can be great. A U67 can be great. An 87 can be great. I use SM7s a lot. Uh, they're cheap and sound amazing. Um, but sometimes you want a 251 or a 47 if you can afford it, and it's around, you can rent it. So vocals are the instruments that vary the most of anything you'll ever record. And even song to song, a microphone that'll work on 10 out of 12 songs on a vocalist and just be absolutely perfect will sound completely wrong on the other two songs on the record. And you've got to be aware of that and like, okay, what do we do? Like, it'll sound like maybe the song's in the wrong key. But really what it is, is you're using a super hi-fi microphone, but on this song it's a little more aggressive or it's in a weirder part of their range in a good way, but it doesn't give the singer anything to push against. So you need an SM7, it's a bit more lo-fi, and it's a dynamic instead of a condenser, whatever. So it's really hard to say what mic's going to work. SM58, like what you've got in your hand, or an SM58 clone, is a great vocal mic. That's every U2 vocal ever recorded, as far as I know was an SM58 in the control room. So you can't go wrong with that. A lot of people want to spend money on a vocal mic because it's important, but a lot of times you don't need to. If you're not a huge reverb guy, are there any other kind of things you're going to to get a vocal to sit in a mix, maybe delays or things like that? Yeah, I mean, I do this usual micro pitch slap thing, so short delays and a little bit of detuning. Um, I almost always have a slap delay going, um, and it changes what that is, but usually a, a more lo-fi thing. Um, and just get it, and it's usually mono, which probably is because if it's stereo, it sticks out a little bit too much, and you can't like get away with it. So that will add depth and stuff. And then also I bring parallel compression in and out throughout a song, and that will help the vocal sit. But it's all stuff that's meant to be things that you don't hear, just meant to make the vocal sit better, be bigger, and also keep up with the changes in the dynamics of the track around it. It's not like, wow, here's the reverb for the vocal in the chorus, and now it's dry. There are songs when I've done that, but generally all that stuff, it's, it's structural stuff. I think the last instrument we haven't covered is bass. Do you have favorite um, mic techniques, processing? No, bass is always really difficult, actually, um, because like you'll get a someone comes in with a rig that's got a sun cabinet, so the scoop um, is it just called the scoop where the the driver faces into the cabinet, and then you've got this big scoop that puts it out the front, and it'll sound amazing in the room. And I cannot figure out how to record that. In fact, I'd like you to tell me how to record that from yourself or from other interviews you've done. Like, it always just sounds like nothing above 100 hertz and sounds like shit. But in the room, it's like, wow, that's incredible. And that doesn't make any sense to me. If my ears can hear it, put a microphone near my ears and it should sound like that and it doesn't work that way. But generally, I close mic, uh, the bass amp, the same way I do on guitars. Um, DI is important and I will often process the DI while I'm mixing uh, just to help, or sometimes it is the sound, you know, um, like I know Al Schmidt doesn't even like to use a bass amp a lot of times. It's like, well, what, why wouldn't I just use a DI? He, that'll work. 
I generally it sends a little too DI to me, so it will get processed and blended in with other stuff. But it's bass is really really tricky because it has two totally different jobs. One is like structurally it has a huge frequency job. It has to be the low end. And there are a lot of mixes, a lot of rock mixes where the bass is doubling guitars, where you don't hear the bass, but if you took it out, it makes a gigantic difference. And then the other thing is melodically and harmonically, what is it doing to the chords and the rest of the song? Is he playing roots? Is he playing thirds? Is he playing ninths? Like it will completely change the way the song feels and how the vocal melody works. So you've got to be able to hear that, but it's low enough that it's difficult. So um, I've seen other people like Ryan Hewitt always has a bass low end channel and a bass mid range channel. He just separates the jobs and like, okay, this one's going to do this. This one's going to do that. I haven't had much luck doing that, um, which is a shame because I love the idea of it, being able to just separate it and work on them individually, but I can't get that to work for me. So it's uh, it's a struggle, but the, it's important to keep track of both of those things, and then I think you'll get something that's going to work. The only thing I can think of for those scooped out would maybe be a mic on the back as well. It's kind of an Eric Valentine but thing. Really, on the even on the it's because it's they're closed back. So Still, maybe I'm not sure. I I don't know exactly which amps you're talking about, but in terms of getting like the sun, end. the sun cabinets have rear-facing drivers, and then they've got this kind of rounded vent. At the, it's like a huge port, right. but the driver itself is facing backwards, so okay, it you mean. reflects out of the port. So you're basically just miking a port. Maybe it would get some of the driver if you had a mic on the back. Yeah, I'm I don't know. Sure, really. I mean, I'm sure I could have researched this before the podcast and had Sorry. an answer for it, but <laughs> no, it just, I, it just occurred to me that that's always a really difficult thing for me. So, Do you have any ways to get a bass to kind of sit in a mix if it's not doing it in terms of adding spatial effects like delays or things like that? Not, not if it's not sitting in the mix, but I will sometimes add reverb to the bass to spread it out, make it stereo. Like, deverb on a bass completely changes what's going on um, in a cool way if the song can take it. Um, no, I mean, I think that the, the getting the bass to sit thing is very tricky, and it's a lot to do with what I was saying before about sort of realizing what job it's doing. And this isn't like a conscious decision I make like, oh, okay, this is what the bass is doing and I need to now go work on the low end. It's just part of mixing. But it's it's as much to do with your stereo bus processing as it is to do with the mix because extra low end will cream your bus compressor if you have one or the limiter and things like that. So getting that right is just, it's, a gigantic part of getting your mix right. You can't have a mix that's awesome except the bass is wrong. Like it won't, you can't, that's not something that can be left. Your percussion can be weird and the mix is great. But if the bass is wrong, most likely the mix is not right either. I think that's all my questions. So thank you so much for speaking with me. Well, there you go. Great, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.